If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, open up to 2 Thessalonians just to get us rolling here. Um, If you don't have a Bible with you, then I want to encourage you at some point to sneak quietly to the back when no one's looking and get a Bible. Because I am not the Bible answer man. I am not your uh, your solution. Scripture is. And what I've intended to do with all the questions that have been asked is go to the Scriptures that back up or support or explain or give us answer. And that's where I'm going to point you tonight. And so I'd really like you to be in the Scriptures and, and every one that I call out, go to it. I don't have them listed up here because of the nature of what we're doing. But 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and Father, I do ask that you will bless this time with your spirit. And yes, we're doing questions and answers, so it's a little different approach, Lord, but we still want to be taught of you. And we still want to be closer to Jesus because of this. And I pray that you will drop seeds into our hearts that will bear fruit. In Jesus' name, amen. So 2 Thessalonians, we've read this, but look at verse 13 of chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, where Paul, after giving this marvelous kind of prophetic overview of some things coming in the end times, he says, But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation, through sanctification, by the Spirit, and faith in the truth. It was for this He called you, through our gospel, that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. We looked at that last week, and the word traditions is paradosis. And it's not traditions the way we might think of it. It's not like Thanksgiving dinner and the way you have to do it the same every year or or other traditions we might hold. It's certainly not like traditions that are held in churches because, well, we've always done it that way. The traditions Paul is talking about, the paradosis in the Greek is, is his ordinances, his teachings, the things that have been handed down by the Spirit of God through the Apostle and through Silas and through Timothy. All three of them are writing this letter that were handed down there in Thessalonica. And he's saying, hold fast to that. That is the Word of God that has been given to you. Hold on to the, the paradosis. And that's truly what we intend to do. It's, it's what we began to do so long ago as a fellowship. Last night I was privileged to have dinner with a few friends over at the Mao's home. And when we were talking about several things through the evening, and toward the end of the evening, I said, you know, a lot of churches go through splits. We were talking, there, there was a word of, of, a, of a church that's having some trouble, and, and it's just it's heartbreaking when that happens. Many of you have gone through church splits. Uh, either been left at a church where people split off, or maybe you split off out of frustration, or maybe you just left because you saw warring going on and you thought, this is just not where I want to be. I need to be where there's peace and where the Spirit is at, at peace. So we're just talking about the issue of, of church splits. And I asked the question, why have we never had a split here at the bridge? Because it's clearly not because of us. Okay, It's not because we just happen to be this group right here. We're the holy ones. We got it all figured out. I mean, the sarcasm is dripping. I hope you can hear it. Of course it's not because of us. So why haven't we? We are as capable of division as any human beings are. Why not? And immediately, uh, Leroy, who was there, Leroy said, it's the Word. He said, it's the Word. 
We have the word that we come back to and the word that we stand on. And then almost as immediately, almost a breath behind him, hey, junior hires, come on in and have a seat. About a breath behind him, um, Leroy said the word, and then Steve Berenson said the spirit. And I said, that's it. It's the word and the spirit of God. The word of God and the spirit of God. So long as our focus is on the Word of God and we are listening to the Spirit of God, we will be at peace. And Rachel was saying earlier today, the reality is the Spirit is the Spirit of unity. He is about unity. Where there's unity, the Holy Spirit is there. Where there's division, that is not of the Spirit of God. And and I loved hearing that and it was encouraging. I want to read something to you real quickly here. And I'm glad you junior hires are with us. Ignite. Uh, Maybe you can ignite something in us tonight. Yeah. So I read an article. And the article just came out. Some of you may have seen this. It was on um, prophecynewswatch.com. And I, I just noticed the heading of the article and thought, oh, that's interesting. It's called, Five Signs Your Church Might Be Heading Toward Progressive Christianity. I don't even know what progressive Christianity was, but it's similar to progressive movements of different kinds. It's leaving behind what has what the paradosis is, leaving behind the traditions, leaving behind what we've been taught, what we know, and moving on to new things and different things. And so, five signs your church might be heading toward this. I wanted to read these to you real quickly, and then we're going to get to your questions. Number one, there is a lowered view of the Bible. And you might hear comments like this. Well, the Bible's just a human book. Or, I disagree with the Apostle Paul on that issue. Or, the Bible contains the Word of God. You know, in essence, it's not all the Word of God, but the Word of God's in there somewhere. You can find it if you search for it. And that kind of mentality is a denigrating or a lowering of the inerrant Scriptures, God-breathed, that we have before us. The lower view of the Bible. Number two, feelings are emphasized over fact. Feelings over fact. Comments you might hear would be, well, that Bible verse just doesn't resonate with me. Well, I'm sorry. (laughs) Or someone might say, I just can't believe Jesus would send good people to hell. Why do they say that? Because my feelings are in the way. As opposed to looking at, okay, what does the Scripture say? And is God a God of love? Yes, He is. And He's saying something in Scripture. And if you think that contradicts with love because it doesn't feel right, then we need to delve deeper into God's Word and we need to ask Him by His Spirit to explain to us these things. But it's feelings over fact. Number three, essential Christian doctrines are open for reinterpretation. That doesn't mean we can't talk about Christian doctrine, but in a church that's heading down this road... It would be things like comments like the resurrection of Jesus doesn't have to be factual for me to believe in Him. Really. Or maybe you've heard at the beginning of Jesus' life, hey, the virgin birth is insignificant. It doesn't matter if He was born of a virgin or not. I still think blah, blah, blah. It does matter. Because truth matters. Number four. Historic terms are redefined. For example... Someone might say, sure, the Bible is authoritative, but we've misunderstood it for the first 2,000 years of church history. So we need to redefine it. Or this one, and I've actually heard this uh, spoken, it's not our job to talk to anyone about sin, it's just our job to love. (laughs) 
Okay, I'm not even going to make a comment on that one. Um, and then number five, finally, the heart of the gospel message in a progressive-leaning church or a progressively-headed church, the heart of the gospel shifts from sin and redemption to social justice. Now, social justice is not a bad thing. But when we shift away from the real message of the gospel, which is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ to save us from our sin, and we get into all these other things instead, we are missing the heart. Then we can do all kinds of socially wonderful things and people will still go to hell if they don't know about Jesus. So, comments with that one, uh, God didn't actually require a sacrifice for our sins. The first Christians just picked up on pagan practices of animal sacrifice, and they told the Jesus story in similar terms. Which is interesting because it completely ignores the entire Old Testament. Or, we don't really need to preach the gospel, we just need to show love by bringing justice to the oppressed and provision to the needy. Translation, we don't have to speak the gospel, we just have to be the gospel. Well, you can't be the gospel because the gospel is something that you proclaim by definition. Again, the gospel is ignite, listen. You guys, if you get this down right now, it will change your entire life. Because there are adults who don't know this. And we go over it and over it even in here because we want to make sure we all know it. Do you know what the gospel is? If someone says, tell me what the gospel is, can you tell me? Let me make it easy for you. It is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That is the gospel. Don't forget that. Anyone ever says, what's the gospel? I may quiz you on Sunday morning. I may call you guys out. Everyone at night, stand up. What is the gospel? It is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is our message. That's the gospel. You guys, get that down. So we need the paradosis. The doctrines of Scripture, the teachings that we have in the Word of God, these things ground us. These things allow us to test spiritual things, to know what is good and hold fast to it, to know what is evil and to reject it. All of the questions that came in tonight are interesting questions. But I want to say this one more thing before we get to them. God didn't give us quick fix, pat answers. Have you noticed that? He gave us this. This book of thousands of pages of verses and, and, and of, of history and, and poetry and prophecy and all this stuff mixed into this, this huge book. I mean, I've got a small version, but it's still huge because the type is really tiny. Why did he do that? Why didn't he even just give us quick answers to our quick questions and we can move on? Because that involves zero relationship. And God is all about relationship. And if you start in Genesis and go all the way through, reading through to Revelation, by the time you've spent all that time doing that, guess what you've done? You've spent a lot of time with God. You've read a lot of what's on His heart. And you will find your relationship increasing. It's what God's all about. So, with that in mind, a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, who died, was buried, and resurrected, the Gospel. Keep that in mind, and that's the background for answering every question that we might have. Question number one. Are you ready? (laughs) I bought a lotto ticket and spent a lot of the money ahead trusting that Jesus would bless me with the winning ticket. Can you confirm for me through prophecy that I will win? Funny. That's funny. Didn't think I'd read it, did you? (laughs) 
question I read. I'm like, oh, okay. Oh, come on. Actually, and here's the legitimate question, and it's a very good question. John's messing with me. (laughs) Are there any prophecies needed to be fulfilled before we are taken home? Is there anything scriptural that God said must happen before the church can be caught up? Before we are raptured, before we go home? My answer to that is no. There are no prophecies that have to be fulfilled before that can happen. In Matthew chapter 24, and go ahead and open up to Matthew. We're going to come back to it later. In fact, we're going to spend a a good chunk of time in Matthew because a lot of your questions went right there. But in Matthew chapter 24, verse 43, toward the end, but be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would not he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason you must also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. We do not think he will because we don't know when he's going to come. You need to understand, part of the reason why I am pre-tribulational, and we've been talking about a pre-tribulational rapture, that is Jesus calling us out before the seven-year tribulation happens. Part of the reason I am that is because Jesus always taught, and Paul taught, and Peter taught, and John taught, and James and Jude taught the imminent return of Jesus. That an attitude that all Christians are called to have is an attitude of imminency. What does that mean? That I'm like highfalutin? No. Imminent means he could come at any time. So an attitude of the imminent return of Jesus says he could be here before we're done tonight. He could be here before my head hits the pillow. He could be here before I get up and have breakfast in the morning. That's not to live in fear. It's to live with expectancy and readiness. And when we read the writings of Paul, it's throughout his writings, everything he says, he's ready for Jesus to come all the way until you get to the end of 2 Timothy, where for the first time you read Paul say, I fought the good fight. I've run the race. In other words, what Paul is saying at the end of that final letter that we have of his is, I'm going to die. Up until then, Paul always assumed he was going to be raptured out of here. It was only when he was on death row in Rome that Paul said, it's done. So I'm going to go home. I'm going to die. But he lived with that expectancy. And for 2,000 years, Christians have been called upon to live with that expectancy. And so that's part of the reason I say nothing has to happen at all. No, no prophecies have to be fulfilled. We're not waiting for this or that or the other. Now let me give you three examples of prophecies that people bring up that they feel like need to be fulfilled before we're raptured. And by the way, all three of these will be fulfilled. Isaiah 17. Isaiah 17 is one. I'm just going to mention this. You might jot it down. In fact, there are several verses tonight I'm going to mention. And if you want to look into it and think through it some more, feel free to do that. We won't have time tonight to hit everything if we do it. Isaiah 17 talks about the fall of Damascus. The fall of Damascus in Syria... You all know Syria is under severe civil war, continues to go on. It's, it's not catching the news like our president is right now, so we're not hearing much about it. But it still goes on. It still rages, and people are watching. Prophecy students are watching Damascus. Will Damascus fall? Because it will. they say it's going to come to an utter end. It's going to come to a complete end. Isaiah 17. Well, 732 B.C., Damascus fell. 
And it fell hard. The Arameans had Damascus at the time, and the Assyrians came down. Kiglath, Pelezer III was the king, wiped it out. Well, so that was it, right? Well, the only problem is the time stamp on Isaiah's prophecy looks like it actually was prophesied 20 years after the fact. Which means Isaiah was prophesying about a fall of Damascus, yet future. And there has not been a fall of Damascus like that since that time. So, we can assume Damascus is going to fall and it's going to be completely wiped out. Damascus, the oldest city in the world. Will that happen? Does that have to happen before the rapture of the church? No. It will happen because the Bible tells us it will. Will it happen before? It may. We might see that happen. We might not. I don't know. Psalm 83. Psalm 83 is a fascinating psalm because it, it's a prayer psalm asking God to protect and save Israel from the onslaught of Arab nations that are named and listed all around, including Gaza, I mean literally the entire circumference of Israel, that all the Arab nations would attack it and would be protected, uh, Israel would be protected, be protected from them. And that Arab-Israeli war ends up with an ending of all of those nations being wiped out and Israel actually pushing out its boundaries remarkably. And Psalm 83 has never happened. Psalm 83 is interesting because it it reads almost like, and, and some of us think, and I are one of them, that it's possible Psalm 83 is a prelude to what's called the Gog Magog invasion. Now, again, I'm not going to get into all this. I wish I could. I, I know Jake has been talking about Gog Magog with our with our junior high and high school students. But that that invasion, that's the third one, by the way. So if you're jotting these down, Isaiah 17, Psalm 83, and Ezekiel. 38 and 39, those are three events prophesied in Scripture, massive world-shaking events, that each one of them, different people will say, well, that has to happen before the rapture. And I'm here to tell you, no, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. Fall of Damascus, Isaiah 17, Arab-Israeli war, Psalm 83, and then the Gog-Magog invasion, and that is a massive invasion from the north, again, against Israel. But the way that Ezekiel 38 and 39 read is Israel is completely at peace. Their borders are expanded. They're living in an unwalled... They don't even really feel like they need protection because they have so much territory. And all of a sudden, a, a Russian alliance comes down and attacks Israel. And is wiped out supernaturally. And the Bible's very clear on that. It's not like could be nuclear war. No, it is an, an, it's the finger of God. He wipes out all the enemies on the mountains of Israel, takes them out. That has not happened. That one especially, that Gog-Magog invasion, there are people who say, well, that's got to happen before the rapture. No, it doesn't. In fact, it's likely, I think, it will happen either right before or soon after the church is taken out of here. And you're with me on on my language here. When I say the rapture, you know what I'm talking about? Anyone not know what I'm talking about when I say the rapture of the church? Okay, Jake, Yeba, Lori Beth, staff, fired. Clean out your lockers, you're gone. The rapture is simply the church being called up, right? Taken out of here, rescued home, taken home by Jesus. And so that event, that wonderful moment that we don't know the day or the hour, doesn't require anything to happen before it. It's important we understand that because, again, we are called to live expecting His return at any time. To live lives of expectancy of the imminency of Jesus Christ. 
There's a whole lot more we could talk about with all three of those things. We're going to let it, let it rest right there. Question number two. You spoke that you could miss the rapture even though you were saved from hell. I always think it's interesting when people tell me what I've said. Because I read that and I went, did I say that? Then this goes on. And I don't know who wrote these, so if I make snide comments, don't take them personally. Okay, don't do that. Then this person goes on, my Bible tells me when you die, you either go to heaven or hell. Well, first of all, let me address my Bible. There is no such thing as your Bible and my Bible. There is the Bible. Okay? So we're all on the same page. There's one Bible. Um, and it's interesting because I, and I only mention that because I've actually had people use that phrase toward me to say, well, you're clearly wrong because your Bible is incorrect. My Bible says this. What you're saying is, this is what I understand or this is what I've been taught. And so this goes on. My Bible tells me when you die, you either go to heaven or to hell. Well, then you haven't read your Bible. Like I said, forgive my snideness. The question goes on. Can you please explain what you mean and give the source on the interpretation? Okay. My answer is go to the teaching section of bridgechristianfellowship.com. Look at Luke 16, verses 19 through 31, and go through that study. That study is called There and Back Again. Yes, I borrowed it from The Hobbit. But it's subtitled, What Happens After Death? And we talk very specifically about the entire biblical view of death, starting with Sheol in the Old Testament, coming into the New Testament, Sheol and Hades. And by the way, please understand, and you can look this up in your Bibles, Hades and hell are not the same place. They are not the same place. Hades is temporary. Hell is eternal. Hades is the waiting place. Hades is the new is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew Sheol. Sheol is the place where, with, without much more understanding than this, David in, in Psalm 16 said, You will not abandon my soul to Sheol. You're not going to leave me in that place. I, I know I'm going to die, I'm going to go there, but I'm going to be there temporarily. So something's going to happen after that. All of the fathers, the the fathers of the faithful back in in the Hebrew Scriptures, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, you go down the list, they all believed in a resurrection of sorts. They didn't believe they were going to be left in Sheol. Well, that was the Old Testament understanding. I'm going to give this teaching to you in in a nutshell. But if you really want to think this through, please go and listen to it. It's Luke 16, and it's on the web, and you can follow this through. We do it very intentionally and carefully. Old Testament, Sheol. New Testament, Hades. Neither of which is hell. Hell is best translated as the lake of fire, and hell is eternal, and is talked about that way in the Scriptures. Hades is not. What's interesting about Sheol slash Hades, this place of the dead, everyone who dies, that's, that's where they went. And then Jesus comes along and he defines it for us in a remarkable way. And it's in Luke chapter 16. He tells about a rich man and a very poor man named Lazarus. And they both die. And Lazarus goes to paradise. Abraham's bosom is how it's referred to. Goes to paradise, the paradise side of Hades, Sheol. The rich man goes to the torment side of Hades or Sheol, and the two sides are divided by a great chasm. Jesus describes this whole thing, and then he talks about the fact that the rich man's on one side, he looks across, he sees Abraham, he sees Lazarus, 
He sees him and he says, please, have send uh, Lazarus over to dip into the water and give me a drink. Abraham says, we can't. We can't cross. And then the rich man says, well, please, go back and tell my brothers and my father about this so that they can be saved. And Abraham says, if they don't believe Moses and the prophets, even if someone rises from the dead, they will not believe. So Jesus shares this. You can look at it and read it. I do not believe it's a parable. And the reasons are many, but partially because he doesn't say it's a parable. Secondly, it's the only story type teaching of Jesus where he names the characters. In all the parables, he never names the characters. In this one, he talks about Abraham. And he never puts Old Testament figures, true historical figures, in his parables except in Luke 16, which again is not a parable. And I believe what Jesus did there was lift the veil on Hades and Sheol. So that we could understand, here's what happens. You die. If you die believing and trusting in God, you go to the paradise side to wait. If you die in rebellion, you go to the torment side to wait. Jesus taught that. And then Jesus died. When Jesus died, He did not go to hell. But He did go down. Where? Hades. Ephesians chapter 4 then gets into this, talks about it. So you start with Luke 16, you can look all the way back to Psalm 16 about you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or to Hades. And then from there you jump forward to Ephesians chapter 4. And Jesus says, he, he, or Paul says, when he died, he who ascended also descended into the lower parts of the earth, euphemism for Hades. And from there he led captive a host of captives. So when Jesus came back out, why? Because at the crucifixion, He bought redemption for all those who were waiting for it. For all those who died in faith, but were not redeemed because the sacrifice had not yet happened. So when the sacrifice happened, Jesus goes down and basically empties out paradise. And now, Paul says, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 6, while we are at home in the body... We are absent from the Lord. Do you realize, every one of you tonight, you are absent from the Lord? Except that He is present by His Spirit. But physically, uh, you know, locationally absent. We are not in heaven right now. I know that's a shocker for you. The seats are comfortable, but it's not heaven. (laughs) And then He says, for we walk by faith and, and not by sight. He says, we are of good courage and prefer rather to be absent from the body. And beware at home with the Lord, present with the Lord. How can Paul say that? Because when you die in Christ, your spirit immediately goes home to be with Jesus. There is no more going to Hades and waiting because your redemption has been paid for. So the spirit goes home to be with Jesus. And that is what my Bible says. (laughs) That is what the Scriptures teach. Sheol Hades, Jesus lifts the veil, Jesus dies, and now Paul says, if you die in Christ, your spirit is immediately home. Okay? Question back there? Yes. Oh, you're going, oh, you're pointing. Good. Amen. Next question. Well, if he's going to answer like that, I'm not going to ask any questions anymore. (laughs) What a, this is interesting. What age will we be 
when our spirits go to heaven and later when our bodies are reunited with our spirits. What age will we be? What? What? 21! I don't know, I was actually better in my late 20s, but we won't go there. What age would it be? Okay, for one thing, some of these questions I will tell you, I will answer immediately, speculation. There is nothing in Scripture that says you will be X age. You know, you're, it's not like if you die an 11-year-old, you are 11 for eternity. You know? Can you imagine being like 14 and you have zits and that's it? <laughs> right? <laughs> exactly. I just want to go back like... 20 years. It's all speculation, but I will tell you this much. It's absolutely irrelevant once we are no longer bound by aging bodies. It's irrelevant. Um, and, and I personally, again, pure speculation. But the infant who dies, the spirit of the infant who dies, is not going to be an infant for eternity. This is a real living being, a spirit, who will be known and will know. This is fantastic. It's beyond my comprehension. But no, we don't die and then stay in this state. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1 says, We know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle, these bodies, were dissolved, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. In this we groan, and we do, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our house which is from heaven, and if being clothed, we will not be found naked. For we are, now that we're in this tent, this tabernacle, we groan, being burdened, not that we will be unclothed, but we will be clothed, that mortality will be swallowed up by life. So let me just tell you, you cannot get your best self now. You will be your best self then. Okay? Question number four. What is the scriptural basis for the seven seals occurring before the middle of the tribulation? Good question. Turn in your Bibles to the book of Revelation. Yeah, the question is, what is the scriptural basis for these seven seals occurring before the middle of the tribulation? Let me give you a background of understanding. In Revelation chapter 6, go to Revelation chapter 1, chapter 1. But in Revelation chapter 6, we read about the beginning of what we've been talking about, the tribulation. Revelation 6 through 19 describes in detail the tribulation. What I believe the Bible is clear about a seven-year period of time here on earth where God's wrath is poured out on this world that has rejected Jesus. And in that, it it gets underway in Revelation chapter 6. In that chapter, we see the Lamb, Jesus, breaking seven seals off of a scroll. And every seal He breaks causes something to happen. And it's sometimes called the seal judgments. And followed that by that, there are seven trumpet judgments. And then there are seven bowl judgments where bowls are poured out on the earth. And they're all picturesque ways of explaining what's happening through that seven-year period. Well, Revelation chapter 6 describes all seven seals are broken in that chapter. The number seven actually is broken at the beginning of the next chapter and opens up. I think I'll look at it. Um, but my answer to the question is simply this. How do we know... 
What's the scriptural basis for those seven seals happening in the first half of the tribulation before the midpoint? How do we know? How can we follow that flow? And my answer to you is very simply this. It's the literal, plain sense of revelation. What do you mean, Rick? I mean, if you take revelation at its most literal meaning, you just walk it through, you discover a chronology. Now, I've told you, Lord willing, we're a year out from getting into the book of Revelation and studying it through. I'm going to do the whole thing on Wednesday night so the Sunday crowd are bummed. <laughs> I'm kidding. I thought about it. No, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> but the book of Revelation is not difficult. It's not a big fat mystery. It has been revealed. Revelation, junior hires, do you know what Revelation, what the Greek word is for that? Any of you? Huh? Well, that's the English word for the Greek. Very good, though. Thank you. It's apocalypsis. When we hear the word apocalypse, apocalypse is from apocalypsis, which is the word revelation, because apocalypsis is an unveiling. God gave us the book of Revelation to unveil for us what was coming. Not to confuse us, not for us to run screaming the other direction and say, please don't teach that, I don't need to hear this stuff. So the book of Revelation is laid out in a very precise and understandable way. Look at verse 19 of chapter 1, and I'll, say, I'll show you what I mean. Revelation 1, verse 19. Jesus is talking to John, and he gives him the entire outline for the entire book. In this verse, Revelation 1.19, Therefore, Jesus says, write the things which you have seen. What had John seen at this point? Jesus in his glory. Write about that. Secondly, and write the things which are. Okay, what were the things which were at the time of John? The church. And, And I'll show you how this works. The church. Jesus glorified, write about that. And John does. He describes it in chapter 1. Write about the things which are. And he does. The church. In chapters 2 and 3. And then he says this. And the things which will take place after these things. Okay? So, Jesus glorified. The church age. Which we'll get into, not tonight, but chapters 2 and 3. And then he says, and then I want you to write about what will take place after these things. After what things? After the church. How do you know that, Rick? Well, he uses a phrase, and the phrase in the Greek is metatauta. Metatauta. And that means after these things. So he says, John, write what you've seen. Jesus, glorified. Write the things which are, Revelation 2 and 3. And I want you to write what will take place after these things. If you turn over to Revelation chapter 4, look at the first three words. After these things. It's the Greek phrase metatauta. It's the first time you see this phrase since Revelation 1.19. John, in writing this, is giving us a very clear outline. So we can follow it through. So now you hit Revelation chapter 4, and this is what takes place after the church age. Well, what's happening in Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5? The church is in heaven. The church has been raptured. Revelation 4 and 5 is all a heavenly vision and based on what's being sung by the people who are there and the praise that is given by the people who are there, it's the church praising Jesus in heaven. So, 
Chapter 1, Jesus glorified. Chapter 2 and 3, we, we read about the church. Chapter 4 begins after these things. And chapter 4 and 5, we're in heaven. And then look at chapter 6. He says, Then I saw, verse 1, when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals, I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice of thunder, Come, and I looked, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. And now, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 6, we are in the tribulation. How do you know that? There's some intricacy here. But if you look at this rider on this white horse, this is not Jesus. This is Antichrist. How do you know? Well, he's given a crown, right? But the word crown is Stephanos, which is a leafy crown that that rots and fades away. Jesus will be mentioned, referred to in Revelation 19. He's got a diadem, which is an eternal crown. So you start to look at the differences and realize that's who this guy is. And if you follow who rides after this rider on the white horse, looking down through the chapter, you might just follow the headings. War, famine, death, martyrdom, and terror. These are the posse of the first rider. This is Antichrist. We have now entered, according to chapter 6, some terrible times. The tribulation has begun. Those seven seals, each one is broken, and one of these riders comes out, and then after the riders comes death and war and destruction, and it's a horrible time. And at the very end of the chapter, the people on earth cry out, saying, fall on us, verse 16, And hide us from the presence of Him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand. Chapter 6 is called the wrath of the Lamb. That, I believe, is is the first half of the tribulation. Roughly. And then chapter 7, you continue on and look at what chapter 7 says after this. I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. After this right there is again metatauta. So John uses this little phrase metatauta and he timestamps the book and takes, it, takes you through it. You get to a certain point and he says, okay, now, write what takes place after these things. Well, this happens. Now, after these things, this happens. Now, after these things, this happens. And he walks through the entire book of Revelation that way and it's easy to follow him through. And we'll do that next year. So, why do I think that the seven seals will occur before the middle of the tribulation? Because John chronologically lays it out like that. Okay, and There's more information that I can give you right now, but that's, that's kind of the sense of it, that there is a plain, literal, chronological sense to the book of Revelation. By the way, there's one in Matthew 24, but we'll get there in a second. Question number five. And if that wasn't enough answer for you, well, we just don't have time. You ask too many questions. Does the Antichrist actually make the covenant with Israel, or does he merely confirm it? What does that mean? Well, Daniel 9.27 tells us he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. That's the New American Standard translation. The King James translation says he will confirm a covenant with the many for one week. So does he make the covenant? Does he actually write it himself or does he just confirm it? Well, you've got to look, if, if you've got two different translations, what does the word mean, confirm or make? And it's the Hebrew word gabar, and that, that word means to prevail by. So you could write it this way, and he, Antichrist, will prevail by a firm covenant made with the many for one week. 
So I think the implication of the word is that Antichrist uses this covenant to prevail over Israel. And so he is the one behind it, and he's the one who brings it, and he's the one who writes it. Uh, Gabar can also mean to exert or to strengthen oneself by. And so Antichrist will strengthen himself by this covenant that he's going to make with Israel. And we've already been looking at Daniel 9.27. All of this, and I'm so thankful to be able to say this now, but all of this, going all the way up to 2 Thessalonians, if I say something tonight in a certain passage and you go, man, I don't get that, it's all, all online. And we've studied all of this. So you can go back and listen to the teaching and, and think it through and, and question me more, and that's fine. And if, if I raise more questions tonight than I answer, I want you to feel free to ask our shepherds and they will answer you. <laughs> Bring your questions. Keep asking. This is how we grow. It is how we learn. Don't be afraid to ask the questions of Scripture. Um, also, by the way, talking about Antichrist making a firm covenant with the many, if you happen to still be in Revelation chapter 6... Listen to this. When he's talking about that first rider on the white horse, I looked and saw him on a white horse, white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow. And a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. So there's an attitude of war, conquering and to conquer. He's got a, a crown, that leafy Stephanos crown that's going to fade away shortly. And he has a bow with no arrows. Well, what good is that? Well, a bow is also what God put in the sky as, as what? A covenant. The rainbow is a covenant God made with Noah and with all humanity that He would never again flood the earth. So now here comes this Antichrist character and he's got a bow. A covenant. So he makes a covenant and it ties it into Daniel 9.27. Question number six. A number of Christians believe that in heaven... They will be united with family members. Some of you are saying, boy, I hope not. I owe Uncle Fred. (laughs) This person writes, this would indicate a strong connection between and a remembrance of life here on earth. So my question is, how much of our earthly life will we be aware of while we are at home in eternity? And then secondly, another question came in along with it that was, will we know our loved ones when we get to heaven? I'm sorry, you're just going to be floating around as ethereal spirits and you're not going to know what's going on. Is that the dumbest thing in the world? Now, as, as a, a kid growing up, I kind of thought that. It scared me. I don't want to die and go to heaven. I won't know anyone. Why do we think that? Because we are relational beings. Guess what? We have a relational God who did not create you to forget yourself or to forget anybody else. He created us to be in relationship together. I'll give you some proof of this, and that is recognition after death. Will we recognize one another when we get there? Will I be able to look over and say, there's Jake. Yes. And will I be able to say to Jake, where's Eva? No, I wouldn't. Totally kidding. Kidding. That's the second time, isn't it? Recognition. How do we know we'll recognize each other? Well, look at the transfiguration in Matthew chapter 17. 
Peter, James, and John are on the mountainside with Jesus. He goes up a little bit beyond them, and he is transfigured before them in a, in a picture of his glorified state. And suddenly, there's Elijah, and there's Moses, and they're talking to Jesus. And Peter says, this is awesome! We should build a little tabernacle for Elijah, and for Moses, and for Jesus. How did he know? How did Peter know who Elijah and Moses were? He'd never seen them. They existed century upon century before Peter came along. And based on what we saw in the Gospels, Peter wasn't that bright anyway. So how did he know? Again, kidding. How did he know who they were? Recognition. Yeah, but he hadn't met them. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. We will know who we are. And I will take it a step further. Not only do I think you're going to know each other and we'll see each other that we recognize by spirit, We'll look over and go, hey, there's Daniel. Hey, there's Abraham. Whoa, Isaac's right over there. And then we'll go, big deal, there's Jesus. (laughs) So we will recognize, I believe, each other. You can look beyond that. In fact, go back to the teaching I mentioned before, Luke 16, of the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man knew who Lazarus was, right? And knew who Abraham was. Jaden has a question, yeah. That's a great question. And that's part two. Of, and I'll answer that in just a second. What if one of your friends didn't know Jesus? Will you remember them? And that is the hard one, isn't it? In fact, that's the one that, I'm, thank you for asking, but we don't want to answer that one. We don't want to think about it. We have to think about it. We have to. As Christians, we, I, I've been talking about this. Let me remind you, we have to live in the tension. And that is the tension between the excitement and glory of us being home with Jesus and the fear of losing loved ones who don't know Him. That is a difficult place to live. And we have to have the spiritual faith to live there and not to be afraid to recognize we know people who right now, tonight, would go to hell. Would not be saved. Um, there was another hand up. Okay, that's the one. Alright, well then let's just go to that one. Um, one, one other thing, one other thing about recognition. Did the apostles recognize Jesus after the resurrection? They knew it was Him. Now, the guys in the road to Emmaus, He was hidden from them until He broke bread, and then suddenly they recognized Him, but they did know it was Jesus. So there is recognition, and we see that in those examples in the Scripture. Um, by the way, I think when it comes to our relationships here, because someone asked a question um, about marriage and family and will I know my family members and, and, and have those same types of relationships how, how will it be between me and Cheryl in heaven and I think that it will be far more intimate for all of us than anything we can imagine here I think our spiritual relationships with one another and with Jesus will far surpass the most intimate close marriage that we know here We get to have marriage. In a healthy and a good marriage, you get to experience a taste of heaven, if you will. But I think once we get there, we're all going to be that close. There will be no extroverts and introverts. We will all just love being together and being with the Lord. Because we're relational people. Okay, so what about remembering? Will we remember those who are not there? Those who didn't make it, so to speak. Isaiah 65, verse 17, tells us this, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, 
Now that's described in Revelation 21 and 22. That is not only after the rapture, after the tribulation, it's after the thousand years of Jesus' rule and reign here on earth that's described in Revelation 20. Oh, you're one of those guys. Yes, I am. Because again, just the plain sense of Scripture lays that out very clearly. Six times in Revelation 20, we're told He will rule and reign for a thousand years. And it fulfills every promise Jesus made in the Hebrew Scriptures that He would give a kingdom and establish a king on the throne of David in Jerusalem. That must be fulfilled or God is not telling us the truth. So the millennial kingdom fulfills those kingdom promises. Well, at the end of that, we have the new heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem, Revelation 21 and 22. God's going to do a whole new thing at that point. And on into eternity we go. It's fantastic. Well, at that time, Isaiah 65, 17, Behold, I create new heavens and new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. Just going to make us forget. I don't know how that's going to work. But I do know this. Revelation 21 verse 3 says, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and He will dwell among them, and they shall be His people, and God Himself will be among them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Somehow, hang on a second, I got you. You're next. Somehow God in His grace doesn't allow us to go on into eternity mourning that loss. But I will tell you this, and of this I am absolutely sure, throughout all eternity one person will know that loss. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. God will not forget. Yeah. When we're in heaven, will we be able to see what's happening on the earth? I'll give you a quick answer to that, and I can't give you a biblical one because it doesn't tell us. But I can tell you this much, we're not going to care. To be in the presence of Jesus, you're not going to want to look at anyone else. We're going to be so just... I mean, it's like when I go to Disneyland, I don't think about bills at home. I don't care. When I'm at Disneyland, I could care less if Reggie is making messes on my carpet. Have fun, dog. So, you know, we're not going to be focused. Can, can we look down and see? I don't, I don't know. I, I kind of think probably not, but, but even if we could, I don't think we want to. I'm going to be so focused on Him and so enraptured with Him and so just enamored by Jesus and by what's happening and just, I mean, whoa, this is so marvelous. Like I said, you're not even going to care if Daniel's there and I've always wanted to meet Daniel, but not, not Daniel Pius. Where, where is he? Not, not you, Daniel. I, I know you'll be there, but, but Daniel the prophet, he'll be there. I don't think it's going to matter. Jesus is going to be everything for us. All right? Let's keep going. Some more questions. Question number seven. Okay. Open up to Matthew 24. 